0: For the love of home. Thanks to you at home for joining me this hour. Before he was even
1: elected president, Donald Trump had a journalist kicked out of a press conference just for asking a question.
2: Okay, who's uh, next? Yeah, please. Excuse me, sit down. You weren't called. Sit down. No, no, sit down. I have the right to ask the question. Go back to and Univision. Sit down, me. please. And ideas, you I'm, weren't no, no, called. No, no, Trump looks me. over at don't his staff. A bodyguard walks over and ushers Ramos me, out, me, of me, out of the news conference.
1: Sit down, sit down, go back to Univision. The journalist Trump had his security kick out. From that press conference was Jorge Ramos, one of the most prominent Latino journalists in the country. Now, Ramos has conducted extended interviews with George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Jorge Ramos is a huge deal. But Donald Trump wanted nothing to do with him. Ramos repeatedly and publicly asked Trump to sit for an interview, and Trump not only declined— but he posted a photo online of a letter Ramos had sent him claiming that Ramos and his employer Univision were begging begging him for an interview Trump's relationship to Ramos and Univision stayed icy throughout his presidency in 2020 the Trump campaign even put out this press release titled Univision is not a news network it is a leftist propaganda machine and a mouthpiece of the democrat party and that history is why it was so shocking last week when Univision had an hour-long interview with Donald Trump in which he was thrown softball questions like this one.
2: Talking about polls, the New York Times, Siena Poll came out this week. It has you with a solid lead in five of the six states that could decide the election. But it also has you with 42 percent of uh, Latino voters' support. That's yeah. unprecedented for our Republican candidate. What do you think the, the, the message voters are sending with these numbers?
1: Now, the only thing weirder than asking, why are you doing so well with Latino voters? Is probably Trump's response to that question.
2: Well, the Latino vote is so incredible because they're unbelievable people. They have uh, incredible skills, incredible energy and they're very entrepreneurial. All you have to do is look at the owners of Univision. Um, They're unbelievable entrepreneurial people, and they like me.
1: Trump's praise of Univision and its owners was strange. But as more reporting has come out about this interview, things have gotten even stranger. Last week, Semaphore reported that three top executives at Univision and its new parent company, Televisa, were in the room during that interview with Trump. Now, that is not entirely crazy on its own. Sometimes executives just show up when high-profile interviews are happening. But this week, The Washington Post reports that that wasn't the only strange thing about that interview with Trump. According to The Post, Univision canceled a booking with President Biden's Hispanic media director, Maka Cascado, who was scheduled to respond to the Trump interview after it aired. And maybe most significantly of all, Univision canceled ads that had already been purchased by the Biden campaign and scheduled to run during the Trump interview. Univision told The Washington Post that its decision not to run those Biden ads came from an unannounced policy about opposition advertising in single candidate interviews and that there would be no Trump advertising allowed if President Biden gave Univision an interview. So far, there is no planned interview with President Biden. And all week, we have been getting alarming stories alleging that Univision has been making editorial and business decisions that seem to directly benefit Donald Trump. And then tonight, just a few hours ago, one of the network's most prominent anchors, Leon Krause, announced that he has left the network. Now, we should say that Krause has not yet announced why he has left Univision, but the timing here, just a day after the Post's reporting about Univision shifting its approach To Donald Trump, that timing raises some questions. Because beyond the ethics questions on the table here, Univision's audience matters a lot politically. Last year, Univision had the seventh biggest network audience in all of TV. It is the most watched Spanish language network in the United States. Univision is the channel of choice for a key demographic in this country and one that seems increasingly up for grabs in the next election. If its executives really are shifting the network's approach to covering Trump, asking softball questions and not pushing back on Trump's lies, that could have a real impact on the 2024 election. And Univision isn't the only media company that appears to be softening its approach to Donald Trump. Today, The Wall Street Journal reports that Meta, the parent company of Facebook, Threads and Instagram, quietly changed its policy to allow ads that claim past elections were stolen. And that means that the Trump campaign can and is running ads that say things like this.
2: We won in 2016. We had a rigged
1: election in 2020, but got more votes than any sitting president. That ran as part of an ad on Facebook in August. Meta's old policy didn't allow ads that claim voter fraud is widespread and or alters the outcome of elections. Its new policy states that the platform doesn't allow ads that call into question the legitimacy of an upcoming or ongoing election. But past elections are apparently fair game. This follows YouTube in June announcing that it has similarly stopped removing claims of widespread fraud in the 2020 election. So, you know, feel free to erode public faith in America's democracy, as long as you're using examples from the past. It's unclear why a company like Meta believes that Trump's false claim about the 2020 election being stolen is all about the past, because quite clearly that big lie is laying the groundwork for the next election in 2024. Here is Donald Trump yet again stoking fears about election fraud in another ad one that is still live right now on Instagram.
2: But it may also be the last election we ever have. If this election doesn't work, if this election is rigged and stolen, if bad things happen, our country will not survive. We will have become a dictatorship where your president is chosen for you. You will no longer have a vote or certainly won't have a meaningful vote. And you could say, frankly, that that has already begun.
1: Joining me now is Michael Scherer, a national political reporter covering campaigns, Congress and the White House for The Washington Post. He is bylined on this story about Univision. Michael, it's great to see you. Thank you for being here tonight. There are a lot of questions I have about the the sort of relationship that has developed between Donald Trump and the owners of arguably the most important Spanish language channel in the United States. Can you talk a little bit more about your reporting?
3: Yeah, there were a number of unusual things. You've mentioned a couple of them. Another one uh, th- that you didn't mention was that Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, who has not really been involved this time in uh, former President Trump's campaign, unlike his two previous runs, did kind of intervene with the campaign this time, according to our reporting, surprising some people inside the campaign to help set up this interview. And that's notable because during the Trump administration, one of the executives who was there when... Uh, former President Trump praised them uh, at Mar-a-Lago was a guy named Bernardo Gomez, who is uh, a senior executive of Televisa in Mexico City, who actually hosted a dinner between Jared Kushner and uh, uh, the Mexican president during the Trump administration. Televisa, I mean, a lot of the concern about this is that Televisa has a long reputation in Mexico, dating back decades, of being very friendly with whoever's in power in that country. And Univision, when it was established in the United States, very intentionally uh, defined itself against that. It it tried to set itself up as an American-style news network that was going to talk truth to power, that was going to be more aggressive. And for years, there's been this sort of give and take with Televisa. A lot of the programming on Univision is Televisa's uh, telenovelas, which are very popular. But the, but the actual corporate control was not uh, overseen by Televisa until relatively recently when essentially the two companies merged. And now you have this blending, which has caused significant consternation in the Univision newsroom uh, in Miami.
1: Michael, do you have any insight into the resignation of Leon Krause, who uh, departed Univision this evening? We don't know why. Is it potentially related to these changes?
3: We don't know why. The timing is uh, notable. The the verb he used in his statement was, my time with Univision is concluded. The only statement that uh, Televisa Univ- Univision uh, put out simply congratulated him for his time and wished him best of luck in his next endeavor. I think this is... Uh, Right now, very much an open question. It is true that there have been uh, financial concerns at Univision, uh, according to a number of people, that there there is fear of layoffs coming in the future. Um, but there was no indication that that was the reason. He was the only person, as far as our reporting can tell, uh, who who was let go yesterday, uh, and or, or or resigned. We don't know, and 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 so we're 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 going to continue to pursue that.
1: And no word yet from Jorge Ramos, who, of course, is a sort of the gold standard for interviewing um, as far as Univision's interviewers for presidential sit downs. I got to ask about the Biden ads that were um, polled conveniently for Donald Trump, inconveniently for President Biden. Um, Is there further detail on whether there is going to be a Biden sit down, whether that was part of Donald Trump's ask in order to give Univision the sit down interview with him?
3: We don't know why the ads were pulled. Uh, we do know that the, uh, from, from Univision, they said it wasn't the newsroom that made that decision. It was a corporate decision from above them. Uh, presumably, somebody didn't like the look of, uh, of an ad running like that. It is typical— uh, to have opposition ads run like during a presidential debate, you'll have a Democratic ad run during a Republican debate. But Univision set its standard here. What is interesting, I mean, it's worth noting that this wasn't just a normal interview. They, they took out the 10 p.m. hour last Thursday, which is their highest rated hour. It's an hour for telenovelas. They, they, they promoted this interview all that day. They did behind the scenes the next day. Um, This was a this was sort of like a network special. It was like a special event. And it was happening for Donald Trump, who's a leading Republican candidate, but is not the Republican nominee for president right now. Now, they have said Univision has said they've made a number of requests to speak with uh, uh, President Biden. Uh, the, The Biden campaign said they had not received a request uh, as uh, until after that interview, the campaign itself, and that no, no request mentioned an hour long sit down. I think that's another shoe that's going to drop how the Biden campaign and Univision figure out how to move forward from this point, because there, there's clearly a lot of a lot of a lot of anger on the Biden side.
1: Right. Anger that is is complicating, given the fact that Biden still very much needs to speak to Univision's audience. Michael Scherer, great, great reporting. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you. It is not difficult to see why the developments at Univision could be problematic for the Biden campaign. According to the latest New York Times Siena poll, Biden's margin of support among Hispanic voters is at 50 percent versus Trump's 42 percent, which is an eight point margin and which is fairly close, given the new reporting from The New York Times about Trump's plans for a second term, including his pledge to launch the largest deportation effort in U.S. history by, quote, preparing an enormous expansion of a form of removal that does not require due process hearings and by creating massive camps to hold immigrants while they await removal. But there is one man who remains quite confident in President Biden's chances of re-election, Jim Messina, the man behind Barack Obama's successful 2012 re-election campaign. He is with me now, Jim Messina, CEO of the Messina Group. And, of course, as we just said, the man who successfully ran President Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. Jim, it's great to see you. Um, I first wonder what your reaction is to the, the news we have, the new reporting about the ways in which media, not just Univision, but social media as well, maybe changing policies in, in a fashion that could directly help Donald Trump and, and certainly provide a, a bigger platform for his lies.
4: It's incredibly concerning, right? I mean, these are some things that happened in 2016 when Donald Trump got elected the first time. He clearly misused Facebook and other things. There were apologies made, but the damage to democracy was real. We kind of thought that people had gotten the lesson here, but now, you know, people are hedging their bets and starting to change their policies you know, with the with the theory that Donald Trump could actually win this election. And in the middle of all this, with democracy at stake... Uh, it is incredibly concerning that these same companies are now starting to do this all over again.
1: I wonder what you make of, you know, as we talk about Univision and its audience of uh, Latino voters, how criti- i mean, how much— The Biden campaign should be ringing the alarm bells in terms of its support among voters of color. I believe it's 42 percent of Hispanic voters are leaning towards Trump, 50 percent leaning towards Biden among black voters. 22 percent of black voters in six key swing states said they would choose Trump over Biden. I mean, is that a function of Trump just basically being in a courtroom most of the time and not on the stump in a, a more public way, saying the same sort of Demagogic, xenophobic things that he did for his four years as president. And, and is that sort of just amnesia? What is that?
4: Oh, you're exactly right. People have just sort of forgotten how bad and how crazy this guy is because he's not been on the stage. And right now, you know, everyone's comparing Biden to the Almighty. But next year there will be an actual choice between two candidates. And that, until that happens, I don't think you're going to see much movement in the polls. You and I have talked before about my concern and criticism of polls this far out. It's a year before the election; they're historically wrong. Barack Obama was put on the cover this week uh, during his reelection. 10 years ago uh, by the New York Times Magazine, who said he had a 17% chance to win and that he was toast. And clearly he won that election handily. So I'm I'm not concerned about the polls. I am concerned that, you know, we get our message out. And that's why I think the Biden campaign is doing exactly what they should be doing. They have really big buys in the African-American, Latino and young uh, communities right now talking about the president's record, talking about what he's gotten done. And I think that's smart. No one's ever gone this early. And I think it shows you how serious they are taking these issues.
1: I want to circle back to that in a second, but you have a piece in Politico that's basically like, Stop bedwetting, Democrats. I'm paraphrasing greatly here. And you talk about the X factors, the black swan events that are almost inevitably somewhere yeah. on the calendar next year. One of the things you mention is Trump and the criminal trials. And you write, will Trump go to prison? It's possible. Can you campaign from behind bars? I wouldn't even call these October surprises. You can almost guarantee that something big and unexpected will happen next year. Um, the polling shows that a conviction for Trump would actually maybe be enough to swing the election to Biden. Uh, how much should Democrats think about that as they move forward in the coming months?
4: They shouldn't, because what I learned running a presidential campaign, Alex, and being in the White House is you can't plan for black swan events. You have to control your message and you have to do the things you've got to do. And what we have to do is move an economic message that makes sense, focus on turning our base out uh, and sort of not worrying about what's gonna happen with Donald Trump. We can't control the myriad of trials and the 92 um, felony counts and and you can't assume those things are gonna happen. You know, some of them are going to happen, But what you can do is control your own narrative and run your own plays. And that's the kind of sugar rush that Donald Trump presents as a threat to Democrats, because you could just wail away on him every single day. And it's fun and it makes you feel better. But it doesn't talk about what you're going to do to make the country better. And, you know, I give the president credit. He's trying to stay to that message, but it's hard.
1: The Axios is reporting that uh, the Biden campaign is not investing in door-to-door sort of ground game strategy in the same way that, for example, Barack Obama did. And they're, they're effectively putting most of their money behind TV and digital ads. Is that a mistake?
4: I don't think that's going to be the plan next year. I think right now, and I gave them this advice too, you know, although I love the campaign I ran and, and, you know, we won an election, if I had to do over again, we probably spent too much money on the ground in the off year. And, um, and so I think they're going to hold that money. They're going to have a massive ground operation next year. They have people who really know how to do this. And I think they'll do that, but they're going to do it at the appropriate time and they're going to save their powder. And right now they're doing what I think they should be doing, which again, is talking to the African American, Latino, and youth communities about what this president has done and save the ground game for next year.
1: Talking to some of them on channels that do not rhyme with Snoonavision. Um, Jim Messina, <laughs> thank you, sir, for your time and wisdom. It's great to see you and hear from you.
4: Thank you very much. Have a good night.
1: Coming up, President Biden takes questions on the Israel Hamas war tonight on the West Coast. As Capitol Police in Washington, D.C. say they are making arrests and responding to approximately 150 people who are illegally and violently protesting outside the Democratic National Committee building. That is next.
0: Get back. Get back, guys. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style and you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
5: You can start your day off right when you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
3: I'm not a fortune teller. I can't tell you how long it's going to last. But I can tell you I don't think it ultimately ends until there's a two-state solution. I made it clear to the Israelis I think it's a big mistake for them to think they're going to occupy Gaza and maintain Gaza. I don't think that works.
1: That was President Biden in the last hour speaking about the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. While over in Washington, D.C., outside the Democratic National Committee headquarters, U.S. Capitol Police have been making arrests, responding to approximately 150 people who are protesting, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Capitol Police claim the protesters were demonstrating illegally and violently. NBC News has not yet verified that claim. This comes as 24 Democrats in Congress today are calling on President Biden to seek that ceasefire. We write to you, they say, to express deep concern about the intensifying war in Gaza, particularly grave violations against children and our fear that without an immediate cessation of hostilities and the establishment of a robust bilateral ceasefire, this war will lead to further loss of civilian life and risk dragging the United States into dangerous and unwise conflict with armed groups across the Middle East. Joining me now is one of the members who signed that letter calling for a ceasefire. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, Democrat of Washington State and leader of the Progressive Caucus in the House. Congresswoman Jayapal, thank you for being here. Um, let me first just get your reaction to President Biden's uh, statements or his response this evening in California saying he made it clear to the Israelis that he thinks it's a big mistake for them to think they're going to occupy and maintain Gaza and reiterating he believes that the, this ends with a two state solution.
6: Well, Alex, I think um, that was important for him to make it clear that uh, Israel occupying Gaza is not going to help anything. It's only going to make things worse. It's not tolerable from a United States perspective. But I would like to see the president being stronger in his comments. Some of his comments in the past days, frankly, were stronger than I heard tonight. So I think it's going back and forth a little bit. Um, I think it's important for the United States to be clear, as the president has said before, that Israel needs to follow international humanitarian law that, uh, bombing hospitals, bombing refugee camps, preventing water and fuel from entering Gaza is absolutely not following international humanitarian law. We know that there's over 11,000 uh, Palestinians who have already been killed, about 45% of them children. We know that only 20% of the water needs are reaching the Gaza Strip today. We know that hospitals can't operate because they don't have fuel. We know that premature babies, and I'm the mom of a very preemie baby who was born at 26 and a half weeks, one pound, 14 ounces. I know what that incubator means for a child's life. We know that babies are dying because their incubators are being taken away. So this is extremely important, not only for the Palestinians and for us to be able to preserve innocent life, civilian life, but also for Israel to be successful in being able to get back hostages, Uh, Very, very important to be able to get all the hostages back, to get humanitarian aid in, and to get to that two-state solution that President Biden is talking about. I don't think that happens through further military action. So it's very important that we have a ceasefire, at minimum a cessation of hostilities that could lead to that negotiated ceasefire so that we can achieve peace and security for Israelis and Palestinians side by side. Can I—
1: there, we have some images. I think we can pull them up of Capitol Police in Washington, D.C. I know you're not there at the moment, but they've been making arrests outside the, the Democratic National Committee headquarters. And I wonder, as a Democrat, if you can talk a little bit about what has been happening inside the party. In the context of all of this, there are as there are some Democrats that have signed on to a ceasefire. It is something that has fractured the the caucus. Um, You know, we're talking you're a Democrat, talking about the Democratic president. These are protesters in front of the Democratic National Committee headquarters. Um, What how have you seen this conversation evolve among Democrats in recent days? Well, I think it's
6: been very tough. I think that there are uh, a diverse set of views on how we should move forward. I do think everybody wants peace. Um, everybody uh, believes in a, a two-state solution or some solution where Israel has security, the right to exist, and Palestinians have security and self-determination as well. Um, and I think it has been extremely difficult for everybody. I will say that um I think that you know, for a lot of young people across the country. And I hope that protesters who are out there, listen, I'm an organizer. I've protested many times, but always peacefully. And I would just hope that everybody continues to remember that nonviolent protest is some of the most effective protest. And I hope that we continue to see nonviolent protest because it is part of our democracy for people to be able to express where they are. I do think that the American people are in a very different place by and large than where, um, where where the conversation is right now in Congress, and so there are many of us who have called for a ceasefire, but also many more that are calling for a cessation of hostilities, temporary pauses. In my mind, these are all um, unified calls for an end to the violence. Um, and the ability to stop, de-escalate, and try to get to a solution that we all desperately want. And, um, you know, I think there are differences of opinion in terms of how we eradicate Hamas, but not that we must eradicate Hamas. That is clear. We all agree on that. I personally think that going in and killing tens of thousands of Palestinians and bombing Gaza completely is not the way to eradicate Hamas. You might be to take out some leaders, but I've been having a number of conversations, including with the NSC, about our experiences around the world, about how you eradicate an ideology in an organization. It is not by bombing. You may have temporary success, but you're actually going to um, continue to push more and more people towards whatever the next version of Hamas is. So I think it's extremely important that we stop, that we breathe, that we make sure that human beings, are being treated, uh, kept alive, and that we're not targeting innocent civilians, and that we acknowledge the tremendous trauma and pain of both Israelis who suffered a horrific attack and Palestinians who are suffering a horrific attack now with all the history that is behind all of that trauma on both sides.
1: Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State, always good to see you. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Alex. Still ahead this evening... From throwing elbow shots at kidneys to threatening witnesses and promising to bite people, Republicans in Congress have been focused on aggression and infighting and a little less focused on funding the government. We're going to have more on that with former Senator Claire McCaskill coming up next. Thanks to House Democrats, Speaker Mike Johnson is closer to getting the government funded for at least a few more weeks. Speaker Johnson managed to get a multi phased funding bill passed in the House last night, but he needed the help of 209 Democrats because only 127 Republicans in his conference voted for it. Just as a side note, do you remember when House Republicans ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy because he had the audacity to try and get something passed with the help of Democrats? Anyway. The Senate is set to vote on Speaker Johnson's bill this week, and if they pass it, they would avert a government shutdown until TikTok, February. In the House, that bill is pretty much the only thing Republicans managed to get done before skipping town today. The House canceled votes for the rest of the week and began their Thanksgiving recess early, before House Republicans managed to secure the funding to keep the lights on at the Justice Department and other federal agencies. Now, If all of this is making Senate Republicans look good, look no further than Oklahoma Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, who is fresh off his attempt yesterday to fight a witness at a Senate hearing. This is what the senator had to say today.
4: By the way, I'm not afraid of biting. I will bite.
1: Biting? Uh, Oh, I mean,
4: yeah. I mean, fight, I'm going to bite, I'll, I'll do anything. I mean, I'm not above it. And I don't care where I bite, by the way. It just is going to be a bite.
1: Joining me now is Claire McCaskill, former Democratic senator from Missouri, and an MSNBC political analyst. I too am blinking my eyes. Like, was that real? What we just saw, Claire? Do you remember the time in the Senate when you had to clarify where you would bite someone? I don't. No, um, this is we're into really weird
7: territory now. Yes. Um, And and here's here's what's kind of interesting about this, Alex. I'm going to give you a quote. The quote is: "Same clown car, different driver." In the House. (laughs) Now, guess who that quote is from? It's from a Republican member of the House. Now, think about that. I mean, I I can't imagine when I was in the Senate that I would go out and be that derogatory towards the leadership of my own party. Uh, They are not a functioning majority. Yeah, Uh, they are schoolyard bullies. And this has devolved into something that, you know, you don't know whether to laugh or cry because it is so embarrassing for our country. I, you know what got this guy mad in the first place? This the guy with two names, Mark Wayne or Billy Bob or whatever his Mark, name is. It's Mark, Senator Mark
3: Wayne. Whatever. Yes, yes.
7: You know what? You know what got him mad? Because the head of the Teamsters tweeted a tweet that showed
1: he was standing on a platform to look taller at a debate. Oh, boy. I mean, yeah. I, <clears throat> the Republican height obsession, I, I, its that's its own uh, television program. But Claire, I, you say you don't know whether to laugh or cry. And I think it's like we're at the stage now where Republicans managing to fund the Justice Department or other federal agencies is like a remarkable feat of partisan organization. They have left early on their Thanksgiving recess because they can't figure out how to get appropriations bills passed. I mean, this is like in the food chain of like legislating. This is pretty darn near the bottom, is it not?
7: It is. um, It's as bad as it gets. The most important function that Congress has is to appropriate funds for the government. Everything works, including our Defense Department, including veterans benefits, including Social Security, Medicare, everything depends on appropriations. So it is really unfortunate that they cannot govern Now, what's fascinating to me is they're not moving to kick Mike Johnson out yet. And so why didn't he just get it all done in this first time? Because guess what's going to happen the next time it all comes up? He's going to need Democratic votes because these guys that are in the far right MAGA caucus can't count. They are in some kind of la-la land that the Senate is not controlled by Democrats. And that the White House is not controlled by Democrats... Legislating is a team sport that depends on negotiation, and half of the Republican caucus will not negotiate and doesn't want to play a team sport.
1: I, I, ask, I ask you, you know, you make the point, I think it's we should say it over and over again, nothing gets done without Democrats really saving the day for the Republicans in the House. What should Democrats do in terms of drawing attention to the dysfunction, the act, the the, the the distaste for governing that seems to be the organizing principle of the modern day GOP, <clears throat> while also keeping the lights on? I mean, how do Democrats, for lack of a better term, play this one? Right. Like they've got to save Republicans, but they've also got to show the American public this is the DNA of this, the, the, the grand old party.
7: Well, they're going to have to keep being as strong and united as they are. Have been. Uh, listen, we have some disagreements in our party. You just had on a guest that highlighted the fact that everyone doesn't agree on exactly how to deal with this horrible Middle East conflict that has plagued the world for decades. But you notice that almost all the Democrats voted together. On this resolution that's going to keep the government open until after the first of the year. Same thing's happening in the Senate. There might be disagreements of policy in the Senate, but nobody is threatening to fight somebody. And in the Democratic Party. I I hats off to the leaders in the House and the Senate of the Democratic Party that has managed, which is not always easy, to keep the caucuses united. And I think that helps the contrast. On one side, you've got the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the crazy caucus. On the other side, you have a pretty united front about not cutting benefits to the middle class, making sure that the government gets funded, making sure that the least of of everyone doesn't get left behind. Uh, Those are the things they've been good at. And if they keep it up, I think the contrast
1: will become more and more clear uh, as the election gets closer. Well, nobody on the Democratic side of the aisle is threatening to bite anyone as yet. So that's one point in their favor. Senator Claire McCaskill, who never had to threaten to bite anyone ever, as far as we know. Thank you for your time. It's great to see you, Claire. You bet, Alex. Thank you. Coming up, the latest, latest legal news coming out of Fulton County, Georgia. That is coming up. Stay with us. Since she indicted Donald Trump and 18 others in a sprawling conspiracy case, Fulton County, Georgia, D.A. Fonnie Willis has so far managed to persuade four of those defendants to plead guilty in exchange for lighter sentences. But that leaves 15 people who still face criminal trials. And despite reporting that there are some defendants who are on the verge of flipping, so far, nothing doing. But something happened in court today that might change all that. You may recall that as the original 19 co-defendants turned themselves in for arrest and processing, 18 of them posted bond and were released right away. Only one of them, a man named Harrison Floyd, spent five nights in the Fulton County Jail until he successfully posted bond. Floyd, the former head of Black Voices for Trump, is one of a trio of co-defendants, including a publicist and a pastor who allegedly pressured election worker Ruby Freeman to admit to election fraud that she did not commit. Freeman and her daughter, Shay Moss, had been baselessly accused of secretly submitting fake votes for Joe Biden while they counted ballots in the 2020 election. In early January of 2021, co-defendant Trevian Kuti, the publicist in this trio, finally managed to get Ruby Freeman to talk to her. You can hear them here in the background of some police body cam video as Ms. Kuti gets Harrison Floyd on speakerphone. I'm going to call Harrison Floyd.
7: I'm going to put him on speakerphone. Mm-hmm. Who is Harrison Floyd? Harrison Floyd is Harrison Floyd. Uh, mm-hmm. It's
5: about the work of crisis. Movement. We a very high level of authoritative powers to get you to protect what you
1: In the end, Ruby Freeman did not need Mr. Floyd's high level authoritative powers to realize that this was all a scam to help Donald Trump steal the election. Now, today, D.A. Willis filed a motion to revoke Harrison Floyd's bond agreement, citing several interviews and social media posts that allegedly violate conditions of Floyd's release by communicating with witnesses and intimidating witnesses in this case. Prosecutors prosecutors cited an interview on a podcast as one example of that where Mr. Floyd trash talks one of his former co-defendants who has now flipped, attorney Jenna Ellis. And then there is the spate of Mr. Floyd's social media posts directed at Ruby Freeman, ones allegedly containing excerpts from that conversation down at the police station. If Fulton County Judge Scott McAfee sides with the D.A. on this, Harrison Floyd will have to go back to jail to await trial. Meanwhile, Floyd's alleged co-conspirators here have remained remarkably defiant. Trevian Kuti, again, the publicist, according to The Washington Post, talks openly on social media about the headline-making experience, taunting detractors and memes and suggesting she should be Trump's next press secretary. Be careful of what you suggest. And then there is Pastor Stephen Cliffgard Lee. You can see him here in police body cam footage after Ruby Freeman called the police on him in December of 2020. Mr. Lee, who calls himself America's chaplain, reportedly appeared at a recent event to raise funds for his defense, saying, quote, I'm not going to plead out to a lie. I'm not going to cooperate with evil. This is the Lord's battle and we've got to fight it. We're going to have more on the upcoming and ongoing battles down in Fulton County as the attorney for yet another co-defendant issued a big mea culpa in court today. Former Fulton County Assistant DA Melissa Redmond joins me to talk about all that next.
2: Judge, in in being transparent with the court and to make sure that uh, nobody else gets blamed for what happened uh, and so that I can go to sleep well tonight, uh, judge, I, I did release those videos to one outlet and and are all candor to the court. I need the court to know that.
1: That was the lawyer for Misty Hampton, a former Georgia elections official and one of Donald Trump's current co-defendants, admitting to the judge in Fulton County that he was the one who gave these video confessionals from the state's election interference case. He was the one who gave them to a news outlet that admission ended the the who done it about the leak that prompted DA Fani Willis to request an emergency protective order during today's hearing judge Scott McAfee gave a not so subtle indication that he would grant that order saying that the case should be tried and not in the court of public opinion that order is expected to come as early as tomorrow morning joining me now is Melissa Redman Fulton County Georgia Deputy District Attorney and an NBC News legal analyst Melissa thanks for being here I have a question. In speaking to prosecutors in and around town, would it have been possible for D.A. Willis to wait until a protective order was in place before circulating discovery materials like these proffer videos?
5: Well, that was a conversation. I have to say, former deputy district attorney of Fulton. Sorry, um, I've been yes, gone for former. A few years now. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is it's possible, and it actually came up with the speedy trial demand earlier, um, I believe in October, that the request was made for a protective order to go along with the discovery, but they wanted to provide it at that time as soon as possible and subject to the courts. Um, pre-trial order of deadlines of when the discovery had to be provided. Um, of course, we know that trial never happened. And there was no further conversation, um, to my knowledge, about the protective order until these videos were released. But yes, it, I think it was anticipated at the time that the discovery would provide or would include sensitive material um, that should be subject to a dis- protective order. And it's just, it just appears that the actual issuing of the protective order never happened, or the hearing about whether a protective order should be issued never happened. Um, and then we have this leak, and the court and the, the parties being in court now reaching an agreement that I believe we all can agree that there are some things that should come out in court and not um, leak to the media prior to the trial.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about that, like what the practical implications of a, an agreed-upon protective order will mean for bombshell pieces of evidence, like the ones that have been released to the media?
5: Well, we have to remember that there are still 15 defendants left in this case, and there is a possibility that some of those defendants may be contemplating a plea that could possibly also entail giving a proffer. And you don't want those people to be intimidated into not um, entering a plea or not giving a, proper out of, a proffer out of fear that it will be released to the public outside of the court proceedings. Of course, they will know that at some point, whatever they say, is going to become Um, public in the trial and that it's going to be provided to the defense because it has to. But again, you want that to play out in the trial. You want there to be a determination from a judge as to what evidence is admitted. And you don't want evidence out in the ether that may or may not actually be put before a jury who's going to decide the guilt or innocence of these individuals.
1: One other question. Jack Smith is probably interested in a lot of this material, especially that that pertains to the special—to the fake electors plot. Will he have access to some of this discovery material, or is it church and state on that?
5: Well, if there's a protective order, it's going to apply to everyone. Um, And there may be some conversations as to how other investigations are implicated and in that protective order, Um, but that would—I mean, I would imagine that if the judge—when Judge McAfee issues a protective order, it's going to apply to the state as well as the defense. All right.
1: So that means Jack Smith's going to have to get in line like everybody else. Melissa Redmond, former assistant DA down in Fulton County. Thanks for your
0: expertise tonight. Thank you. That is our show for this evening. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best.